Well, we want to be able to speak some truth over Easter and have a little bit more than fun, but we'll do that too. We have some activity basket or uh, bags uh, for some of the kids here today. Um, and if parents, if you find yourself needing something to doodle with, we have some outlines that you can take notes in just so you don't feel left out as well. Um, now, these bags are special bags that don't have any noisemakers in them because we wanted these bags to help you stay occupied because we believe that you can listen and craft at the same time. So if you want to find your notes and uh, if you want to follow along, I just have a few thoughts that I want to share with you this day. Um, I think I'm going to stay right here. Uh, okay. You get a bag all to yourself. Okay. You know, the thing about Easter at least for Christians, whether you know it or not, it is the most important day in the history of all time. And you think, well, why? You ask a good question. Thank you for asking that question. I think the reason that Easter... Thank you, Miss Harper. What a great thing. We've got a few more baskets or bags. Perfect. Do we need any more? Easter becomes the most important day in the history of all time because it's the one day that God reveals to us. He shows us what the future looks like. And the future looks really bright because it looks like life not death. It looks like hospitality, not abandonment. It looks like um, peace and not war. It looks like sobriety and not addiction. It looks like family, hold the drama. It looks really good. It looks like forgiveness without the scorecard. And it looks like generosity, not scarcity. It looks like justice without an uh, oppression. So what we have in Easter is a glimpse over the world that not only God created and intended, but the one he's trying to restore and bring back again. That sounds kind of good. I think we all long for a world like that. We long for a world that's free of grudges. We long for a world that's free of greed. We long for a world without human trafficking and without terrorism. We long for that world and we create a kind of unrest because we have this hope in a God who makes these promises and we live in a reality that feels very distant from it. There's a story today that comes out of a guy who's quite interesting to me. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And if you have your Bibles in John chapter 19, we read these words at the burial of Jesus. And it says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. This was right after Jesus had been crucified. He's being taken down from a cross. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but, key phrase, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus visited at night. That's kind of interesting, because at night, less people were going to notice that you're having a rendezvous with the potential king of the Jews. 
taking Jesus's body, oh, excuse me, uh, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had visited him at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At, that, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. There are, boys and girls, three Josephs in the Bible. I don't know if you can uh, name all three, but I'll name them for you. There was Joseph, and he had a technicolor dream coat. Do you know what that is? There was a Joseph, and he had a lot of brothers, and they had a lot of fights. In fact, if they had a really big house with 12 bedrooms, there was some brothers that wouldn't allow their brother into their bedroom because they just weren't good sharers. But he got a really fancy coat, and he actually has nothing to do with Easter. So we're not going to talk about that Joseph. But then there was two other Josephs in the New Testament. One of them was a carpenter, and he was Jesus' father. And he has somewhat to do with today because he helped raise Jesus and taught him the trade of carpentry. But the Joseph that we're reading about here of Arimathea is the one that we really want to talk about today. But if we were to make a couple of comparisons about the two Josephs in the New Testament, the father of Jesus and the one from Arimathea, it's interesting because Joseph, Jesus' father, was a poor man and Joseph of Arimathea was a very well-to-do man. One lived with very modest means. The other was in the inner circle, in the 1% group of who's who. Now, what's also interesting is that um, Joseph, Jesus' father, provided a manger for his birth. Joseph of Arimathea went and found a tomb for his death that ultimately would lead to new life. But what I found was interesting is that there's no recorded words of either of these two men, just their deeds. But I think their deeds are worth talking about today. So Joseph of Arimathea makes space for Jesus. That's what he does. He finds a place and he makes space. What did Joseph of Arimathea do? He made space. That was not rhetorical. But thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll get going. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea makes space for Jesus because he believes that somehow he would be changed or at least impacted by the experience. And I would contend that we all at some point need to make space for Jesus, mostly because he's overcome. In fact, the one thing that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions isn't that it promises eternal life. They all do that. It's that he conquered death and conquered and had new life in this time on earth. And so he puts his hope in Jesus, believing that it will produce change in him and new life because he's overcome. But he also produces, puts hope in Jesus because the kingdoms of this world aren't working. And he has a suspicion that Jesus, as a new king, would bring a new kingdom of a whole different kind. And I would say that we're not doing a very good job of running the world as we know it. It's hard to watch the news, is it not? Syria, North Korea, London, San Bernardino, again. 
we are not real great at running the kingdoms of this world, whether it be politically or, or militarily or even socially, economically, religiously. And so Joseph makes room for Jesus, believing that it'll make a change, but he makes room for a new kind of kingdom. So he brings the body and he goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body? And he brings it to this tomb. And the thing about Joseph is there's two things that I would just highlight. Joseph was a part of two groups. He was in with the Romans. And the Romans were the ones who were the global military superpower and they had just executed Jesus on a cross. So the one thing with the Romans is, is that they wanted to maintain their power, their authority. And they would often leave people to hang on the cross for days on end so that they would squash any potential rebel rousers. And so the one thing you didn't want to be recognized as is a sympathizer, one who is sensitive to the cause of Christ. But he steps out and he goes and asks Pilate for the body of Jesus because he felt like Jesus should at least have a proper burial. But the second group that Joseph is a part of is the religious Jewish council, a very elite group that was actually in cahoots with the Roman uh, Empire, and they were in charge of the temple courts, the ones a week earlier that Jesus had thrown over the tables for, because they were making money hand over fist off of the worship of God. Except that it says in another account that Joseph didn't agree with the decision by the Jewish high council that they should crucify Jesus, of which they held a trial at night when no one else was around. This gives me great hope. See, because Joseph, see if you resonate with this. Joseph was a man of faith, except that he also has a reputation. It says that he was a disciple, but he was a disciple secretly. He had faith, but he also had a reputation to uphold. He was a man of great affluence, except that he was also quite needy. He was a man of confidence, but also had insecurities. He was a man who, who had a suspicion and idea, but he also had doubts and worry. Does this sound like the tension that you live with with your own faith? Because when I start to read the story in each of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Joseph of Arimathea, this sounds like my faith. It's a tension of a both and where we go, yes, I got faith, except I've got questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful in you, except I've also had some doubts. See, Joseph shows up and he wants to respond. It says that he's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. In other words, he's a follower of Christ. And sometimes it's easier to believe on Sundays than it is on Mondays. Sometimes it's more hopeful in the sanctuary than it is in the marketplace. And yet, Joseph of Arimathea has enough faith, even though he followed somewhat discreetly, that he's called a disciple. And this gives me great hope and encouragement because I live with the same tension of confidence and insecurity, of needy and affluence, of faith and doubts. And we're welcomed into Christ's story because we can resonate and see a reflection in scripture of maybe our own story. Um, so how much faith does Joseph have? Does he have a lot or does he have a little? Is it a big faith 
or a small faith? Doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter. What matters is the object of the faith. It's not how much, but if you get the object of your faith right, you get the desire of your faith right. And that's really important. A few years ago, I read a book, and the book was called The Holy Longing. It was written by Ronald Rollheiser, and his premise was this. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, is that all of us have within us a holy longing. In, in each of us, and it shows itself differently, is this restlessness, this desire. If you have in you a sense of justice, if you have in you a bleeding heart, if in you is some kind of empathy or concern for others, or if you felt yourself unjustly treated or glossed over or, or forgotten, and you feel like you've been left out, I believe at its very core is created by God this sense of a holy longing. And this is what he wrote about. And he gave three pictures of three unlikely characters, three women that you would never put in the same conversation. But he asked the question, what is it that Mother Teresa, Janis Joplin, and Princess Diana have in common? Well, Mother Teresa is someone that I think most people revere. She lived till she was 87 years old. When she was eight years old, her dad died. And when she was 18 years old, she left home, never seeing her mother or sister again. She dedicated her whole life to God and the poor. She wanted to be, she was a woman of great passion. She was a woman of great discipline. But all of it was funneled into the marginalized and the most vulnerable. In fact, she had a belief, a sincere conviction, that no one should die alone. So she moves to Calcutta, India, and she works with not just the poor, she works with lepers in leper colonies because she had a fundamental belief that no one should die alone. Everyone should die with the dignity of knowing that they were loved. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, the definition of a saint is one who's able to will the one thing. I would say this, Mother Teresa could will the one thing, and for her, it was God and the poor. You look at her, she looks frail, she looks weak, but ask anyone who crossed her path, she was a human bulldozer because she was committed, her life's calling was God and the poor. Janis Joplin had an equal level of passion. She was a woman of great, fiery kind of love. She has a history in Austin. It's interesting to read through the history books and Wikipedia and all the things about what Janis Joplin did. She didn't live till she was 87. She lived till she was 27. But she had an equal level of passion and desire. But maybe we could say this way. She never learned to will the one thing. She willed many things. And ultimately, it cost her her life. She willed creativity and she was passionate about performance and booze and sex and alcohol and drugs and a lack of rest till ultimately it cost her her own life. Once again, same kind of tenacity, same kind of passion, same kind of perseverance, but she willed many things. 
there was a holy longing in her that maybe we could say never could get bridled. Mother Teresa is someone that we might consider a lot like our own story. Now, I'm sure you never thought, I'm a lot like, excuse me, Princess Diana. But Princess Diana might even be like a, a little bit like Joseph of Arimathea. Let me tell you what I mean. And this is how um, Rollheiser describes it. Princess Diana, well, she was probably the most photographed woman on the planet. And she would spend millions on just her wardrobe. And clearly, she was no real celibate nun. And yet, we could see in her legacy, she had such a huge heart for humanitarian relief. Specifically, she would go into countries that had been war-torn, and she was finding out that all of these landmines were still loaded, and, and the poor would come across landmines that had been in the wake of war zones, and people would step on them, and children would step on them, so she created huge humanitarian initiatives. Fascinating. She, was a, she lived that tension, that kind of juxtaposition, that tension between care and commitment, that tension between sin and virtue. She was the woman who loved the poor and her Mediterranean vacations at the same time. Now, we might not be totally engaged with the poor, but we do have a concern with maybe some of our neighbors or some of the needs among us. We might not be having Mediterranean vacations. We might just be getting a house down at the Gulf. But we all live with that same tension of how do we steward our gifts, our influence, our financial resources, and our time in a way that doesn't just promote my life, but promotes a kind of well-being of God. That, for all of us, is the holy longing. And the hope of the gospel is that even if we follow somewhat quietly, we can still follow and be counted as one of Jesus' disciples. You just missed a really good chance to say amen. I mean, if that is not good news, I don't know what is. Rollheiser said it this way in this quote, spirituality is not something on the fringes, an option for those with a particular bent. Some people, I think, are trying to opt out of faith and sort of say, mm, just not into that. And I, and I like what Rollheiser says. He says, none of us has a choice. Everyone has to have spirituality, and everyone does have one, either a life-giving one or a destructive one. No one has the luxury of choosing here. We do not wake up in this world calm and serene, having a luxury of choosing to act or not act. We wake up crying, on fire with desire, with madness. And it's what we do with that madness is our spirituality. See, Joseph, he had a little bit of faith and he had enough desire that he got to experience the kingdom of God. So it's not how much faith and desire, but it's where we put it. So one final question is this. So if it's risky to somehow go up to Pilate and ask for the body, let alone follow Jesus, why would he do it? I believe fundamentally, Joseph believed in a different kind of kingdom. And he had seen Jesus, that this would be potentially a different kind of king with a whole different kind of core values. And so he thought, no, Jesus brings a kind of value that earthly kings and kingdoms don't represent. Because Jesus brings love, not indifference. He builds bridges. He doesn't build walls. 
He's about peace and not violence. Hospitality, not silos. Compassion, not fear. And so it was this gnawing suspicion that he had enough faith to go, I'll do it. I'll go up to Pilate and ask for the body. I'm a follower. And so we have this place. And again, he paints a picture of the future kingdom. The future kingdom is without wars. The future kingdom is without hunger. The future kingdom is without debt. It's without injustice. And the future looks like a banquet table where every tribe and every tongue and every nation is gathered. Every age and every lifestyle come to the table, not in uniformity, but in diversity because we bear the image of God and we can find what's common among us. See, I think all of us want that kind of kingdom. But just wanting that kingdom does not make that kingdom. Joseph goes a step further, taking that desire and making it into action. And that's what I, that's what I love about this picture, is that we need a new king. And the reality is, unless I identify with that king, all of my longings for a new kingdom remain just that, longings. There has to be something that I settle in my own heart that declares my allegiance to a new king if it's going to mean having a new kingdom. Let me give you three final observations about the tomb. Because as Joseph took him, and, and this is kind of interesting, it says that he desired peace and it's kind of all he could give. He followed somewhat discreetly, but then he came and, and, and he took the body and he gave it a proper burial and bought this tomb with his own means and no one had ever been laid there. But the first thing we notice about the tomb is that Jesus was put in the tomb in the evening. It's a subtle detail, but it's worth noting. What happens in the evening? Well, this is part of God's economy that we mostly don't understand. The evening, historically, in biblical times, all the way back to the Garden of, Garden of Eden, the evening always represented rest. It represented the beginning of the day, not the end of the day. We think of it the opposite, is that we begin our day and soon enough we meet our own limitations and we get to the end of our day realizing that we didn't get to accomplish all that we meant. God sees evening as the beginning of the day because that's when God wants to begin the process of rest and restoration so that we go into our living dependent and renewed in him, not getting to the end of the day and simply collapsing. So he starts with rest and restoration. Jesus is placed in the tomb in the evening so his body can be given a chance to experience rest. And the second thing that comes out of this is that it says Jesus is in the tomb on the Sabbath. We're not great with Sabbath. We are always accessible. We don't have necessarily a rhythm for rest. But Jesus, at this point, is dead. He can do no more on his own. And it's then that his heavenly Father intervenes and he can do the work that only God can do. So when we carve out time for that which only God can do, he then can breathe new life. So God meets his son in a dead place and does this and he breathes new life. And for us, God wants to meet us in the dead places of our life, 
the dead places of marriage and the dead places of debt, the dead places of relationship and the dead places of career. And he wants to breathe new life, not for our promotion, but for his namesake. God meets us when we can't do any more. If Mission Hills has one testimony, it's that doesn't matter how charming I am or how gifted I am or how many people I know, I can't grow, build God's church and see lives transformed. All I can do is make Christ known and let his Holy Spirit breathe new life into dark places. Easter is a day that God wants to breathe new life into each and every one of us. So what is dead today can be alive tomorrow. Amen? Amen. The third thing that we see coming out of this tomb experience is that on this day, the, the tomb wasn't in a cemetery. Where was it? It was in a garden. Who among us thinks of a tomb in a garden? We think of it by association as a place that kind of scatters death all over, except that it's in a garden. It is a place of new life. So the tomb was in a place of life. The place where Joseph put Jesus, listen to this, became the place of Jesus's second birth. What did he say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nick, sorry bud, who's also part of that high council, that Jewish elite. And he says, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Jesus has his first birth in a, tomb, in a manger and his second birth comes to us out of a tomb. We, like Jesus, if we want to experience a new tomb we or a new life, we have to experience a new birth right in the model of Jesus. That's good news. So like Joseph, I think the key for us is to make space for Jesus. It's coming to the realization that Jesus never expected us to live the Christian life on our own. That's kind of an unusual thing to hear, perhaps, at church. But we've actually been created for a life that we can't live unless we receive Christ. To come into our lives and live the life that which we are created for, but we can't actually do on our own. And so we come to him with dead space and dark places. And he meets us and he breathes new life into it. So we can live the life that we are called to live in his power and his strength so that the work of transformation can begin. So that the things that bog us down today, the things that hold us back today, aren't the things that become our story. They're our past, but not our present. Jesus wants to show up in a new and a fresh way. And God wants to show up and breathe new life. I would say it this way, we can make today a really special Easter. And I want to pray simply one of two prayers with you today. Okay, everyone, we're going to pray. So I'm going to ask for you to just listen up really close. For one prayer, if you just want to invite Christ as a second birth, something that you might have never done, but you've been in church for a whole long while, but you never got to pledge your allegiance, declare who the king of your life is, to become a citizen of heaven, I would simply say with hands open, God, thank you that you came to live the Christian life.
Thank you, Jesus. You can live the Christian life. Will you come and breathe new life into me? I'm also aware that many of you might have already made that decision. But you came in here really aware of dark places, maybe a physical diagnosis, maybe in a health condition, maybe it's in a relational state, maybe it's in a career place. Maybe you come in here with a limp of boredom or depression and you just haven't been able to shake it. All I'm saying is the God of creation it wants to breathe new life. And so if we really want to make it a special Easter, I would invite you now to pray simply one of those two prayers. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to live the Christian life that I can't live on my own. Will you give me that new life and breathe life into dark places? Or the second one that just invites you and name it to breathe new life. Will you pray with me as we close? We have one more song that we're going to finish up with, but let's just have this time of prayer together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you that you came not just to mess around or to give us a goosebump. You came to bring new life. And your intention was that we would be transformed further into your image. And so we confess that we live with a tension of both faith and doubt, confidence and insecurity. We live with both affluence and profound need. Would you meet us in our greatest need? And through your Holy Spirit, would you give us a word? Would you give us a picture? Would you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, reveal to us that which you want to invite us into? For my friends here today that know you maybe at a distance, I pray that they would know you personally. For others here today, I pray that they would take a next step and invite you into dead and dark places so that this might be a day of new life. Will you just linger with us as we sing, You are our forever Lord. In Jesus' name.